0: Good morning, I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point. So good to have you here with us, worshiping together. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the Word of God together. Hebrews chapter 12, passages we saw. So follow along as we we contemplate what God has spoken. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Spirit of God that indwells every believer to teach us in this new covenant relationship the truth of your word to apply it to our hearts. May our hearts be open and receptive that we may respond in repentance and faith to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Last week, Pastor Joel uh, led us through a study of the previous paragraph that connects to this truth about the fear of God and emphasized how Mount Sinai showed us the fear of God, how Mount Zion emphasizes the fear of God in our lives. And we want to pick up on that and focus on it again. So I want you to understand that there are two kinds of fear of God. The person that has not yet received Christ as Savior has every reason to fear God, and yet often they don't fear God. Uh, the Bible makes it really clear that when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, that they hid in the trees of the garden out of fear and terror of God's presence when God came into the garden. Jesus actually said this in Matthew 10:28: Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. So there is to be a fear of God. If if you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, if you've not trusted in his gospel yet, my friends, you have every reason to fear God, and yet often those are the people who would blaspheme God, mock God, scorn God, when they really ought to be living in the fear of God. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, we too should live in the fear of God. Matter of fact, this passage was written to those who were professing faith in Christ, and God is saying that we should fear him. Only the difference is this. The gospel has changed everything for us. So while we fear God, we also can trust God, and we can experience his love and love him back. So fear and love meet together in a very good way. John, one of the closest friends of Jesus when he walked here on earth, when he in the Isle of Patmos received what we have written in the book of Revelation, he saw a vision of Jesus, not in his humility and his incarnation, but now in his glory in heaven. And John's reaction was to fall on his face before Jesus and tremble. And the Lord Jesus reached out and touched him and helped him to be able to stand and and quieted his fear. It's fascinating to me that John, the most personal friend of Jesus, trembled in fear when he saw him in his glory. So when we speak tritely about Christ, we speak tritely about God, we don't understand at all what it is like to be in the presence of God. And so the fear of God is, is something that we're to cultivate. Last week, Pastor Joel shared this quote from uh, Paul David Tripp, and it was so outstanding and insightful that I want to share it with you again. To fear God means that my life Is structured by a sense of awe, worship, and obedience that flows out of recognizing him and his glory. He becomes the single most important reference point for all that I desire, think, do, or say. God is my motive and God is my goal. The fear of God is meant to be the central organizing force of my life. I want to ask you a question Is God and the fear of God the central organizing point of your life? Does all of life focus on that relationship with God? In particular, as we look at the fear of God, that awe, that worship, that obedience, the glory of God in your life, it's the reference point of your life. Another way to think about this, and I'll put up another slide here, uh, reflecting and meditating on the fear of God a few years ago, I, I jotted this down three things about the fear of God that I see in Scripture. It is a worshipful awareness of God's nature. A worshipful awareness of God's nature means the more aware I become of who God is as revealed in creation, in scripture, and in Christ, the more I understand his attributes and his glory, his holiness, his righteousness, all that God is, and his grace and mercy. There's a worshipful awareness of God's nature. Secondly, it is a submissive obedience to God's authority. So to fear God is not only to worship him in awe, but also to submit to him, to bow the knee before him, and to recognize his authority in my life, that God is the highest authority in the universe and needs to be the authority in my life, a submissive obedience to God's authority. Thirdly, a wise agreement with God's perspective. That real wisdom means that I begin to try to think God's thoughts after him, which is why we have 66 books in the Bible, so that we can learn to think God's thoughts. And and it's a wise agreement with God's perspective. In other words, I'm going to agree with what God has said. And when those three things align, a worshipful awareness of God's nature, a submissive obedience to God's authority, and a wise agreement with God's perspective, then we will be living in the fear of God. And there's a lot of positive benefits that flow out of that. For instance, the fear of God is the source of wisdom. That's what Proverbs 1.7 says, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot be wise without the fear of God. But when you have the fear of God, you will be a person of wisdom. Job, we read, that he had a hatred for sin in the fear of God, and yet he had righteousness. So Job was a man who feared God, hated sin, and he was a man who was blameless and righteous. And so in our lives, our fear of God will be reflected in a changed perspective on sin. We will still battle sin and temptation. We need to understand that. But a person who fears God will actually hate their sin. They will hate their sin, and therefore they will live a different kind of life, a righteous and blameless life. A person who fears God also delights in God's commands and enjoys his blessing. That's what Psalm 112, the whole Psalm, is about the fear of God. You might want to read that. Blessed is a man who fears the Lord, he greatly delights in his commands. When you fear God, you're going to delight in his word and you're going to enjoy his blessings. Sometimes we think that fear and hope or fear and trust are exclusive, but the fascinating thing for the believer who fears God, they are not, they're combined. So Psalm 147 says this, but the Lord takes pleasure in those that fear him. He actually takes pleasure in them and those who hope in his steadfast love. So fearing God and hoping in his steadfast love are actually combined. They're not contrasted. Normally when we think of fear, we think of something that I want to withdraw from. But when we fear God, in light of the gospel, we don't withdraw. We draw near to him. We hope in him, and we trust in his steadfast love. So loving God and fearing God are actually the same experience in that way. It also results in courage. It results in courage. The fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge, Proverbs 14, 26. Do you realize when you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else? Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way, the fear of God is the death of every other fear. When you fear God, you don't have to be afraid of anything or anyone else. You can try a little experiment. You can take a penny or any, any uh, coin, hold it up close to your eye, and you can block out the sun. If you close one eye and you hold that coin up, try it at home, it actually works. Okay? You can block out the sun by holding a coin there. In the same way, When you're afraid, it's because something else has gotten your focus instead of God. When you fear God, you don't have anything else to fear. You don't have anything else to fear. Matter of fact, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he wrestles with where can life find meaning and purpose and fulfillment... And he tries everything, money, power, building projects, education, um, everything he tried in his life. And he says it's all vanity, it's all empty, it's all soap bubbles. But at the end of the book, he says, this is the whole duty of man, fear God and keep his commandments. So he says fearing God really sums up our responsibility. So there's a sense in which the fear of God and loving God actually work together. So when you think of the fear of God, How do we cultivate in our lives the fear of God? That's a question we want to wrestle with. How can you and I cultivate the fear of God? And Hebrews chapter 12 really answers that question for us. Uh, Let's look at it together. First of all, we cultivate the fear of God by responding to God's powerful message. Verse 25 See that you don't refuse Him who's speaking. They didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, like from Mount Sinai. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. We'll stop there for a moment. Respond to God's powerful message. One of the, one of the things that will help us to cultivate the fear of God is learning to respond when God speaks. We, we say it here at the uh, point all the time. That when God speaks, it calls for a What? It calls for a response. Try that with me, okay? When God speaks, it calls for, a response. calls for a response. Thank you. Much more confident that time. So he's saying here, see that you don't refuse the one who's speaking. Later it said, they didn't escape when they refused him who warned on earth. This idea of refusing is what I call reverse repentance. You know what repentance is. Repentance is a Michigan U-turn. You're going one direction, you turn and you're going a different direction. Reverse repentance means I, rather than turning towards God, I turn my back on God. Rather than turning to believe God, I stop believing God. Rather than turning to obey God, I turn away from God. That's what it means to refuse when God speaks. Rather than that, God calls us to repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. Repentance means when God speaks, it's supposed to cause me to turn from my sin turn from my rebellion, turn from my independence against God to turn towards Him, and now to trust Him. Repentance and faith are the appropriate response when God speaks, when God speaks. And God's Word always calls for response. God spoke on earth. He spoke from Mount Sinai, giving the law. He spoke through the authors of Scripture in the Old Testament and the writings. He spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. He spoke through Jesus when Jesus was here on earth and he taught. He spoke through the apostles and what we have in the New Testament. God has spoken. God speaks in creation every day. Psalm 19 tells me. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork." God is a God who is speaking. And even if you've yet to trust him as your Savior, I want you to know, God has moved towards us and revealing himself. God has made himself known and he's continually doing that through the work of the word of God and the spirit of God. God is reaching out to people and he's revealing himself to people through the word of God. God, when God speaks, we need to respond to God's powerful message. And God ultimately has spoken to us through his son Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of the book of Hebrews. When God speaks, it calls for a response. When Jesus was here on earth, one of the parables he taught that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a parable of the soils, and you know that, I'm sure, well. The, the farmer goes out with his packet of his, his pouch of seeds, and he's sowing it on a field, and there are there are four different kinds of soil. The, the hard-packed soil, there is the um, stony soil, there's the, the thorny soil, and then there's a good soil. And in the, that parable, Jesus then explains it to his disciples, and he said the seed is the word of God. It's God speaking. And that the soil is the human heart. And the condition of the human heart determines the response of the word of God, whether it is fruitful or not fruitful. And some people receive the word of God, even today, right here this morning, or listening online, there'll be people that'll hear the word of God and say, I just outright reject it. I'm not interested. I'm only here because someone forced me to come. And if that's your situation, that's a hardened soil. There are people that will respond emotionally, but not in a real change of heart. That's like the stony soil. When a trial comes, you don't respond. And then there are those with the cares and the riches of this world, and like thorns choke the word, and there's not a response to the word. And then there's the good soil where the response is there, and there is fruitful and change. Here's the thing I learned from the parable of the soils for my own heart and for yours. I am responsible to prepare my heart every time I encounter the Word of God. I'm responsible to prepare my heart every time I read it. Every time I come to church, every time I sit under the teaching of the Word, I have a responsibility to prepare my heart, to open my heart up to God. Why? Because I need to respond to God's powerful message. Friends, You and I don't get to make up what God has said. And you can choose to disagree with what God has said, but here's what I discovered. God's not going to change his mind. God has spoken, and he didn't stutter. God has spoken, and he means it. Listen, I grew up in a family where my mom and dad spoke. They may assume I didn't hear them the first time, so they'll give me a second chance. After a second chance, there was no other chance. You know, it's interesting with children, as we've raised three kids and now our grandkids, you can say to a child who's right in the same room with you, go clean up your room, go take out the garbage, whatever it is, and they will just act like they didn't hear you. But you can be three rooms away and say, hey, should we serve some ice cream? And they can hear you and they come running. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Listen, when God speaks every time, it calls for a response from us. What kind of response? A response of repentance where I no longer am choosing my thoughts over God's thoughts. A response in faith where I choose to trust and believe the word of God. The fear of God requires that we respond to his powerful message. Secondly, the fear of God God is cultivated when we trust in God's unshakable kingdom. Look at how he talks about shaking. His voice shook the earth. But now he's promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He's quoting from the prophet Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6. I'm going to shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And this phrase, once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, the things that have been made, things that are created, in order that the things cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So God is saying here that we should trust in his unshakable kingdom. He's saying that he's going to shake heaven and he's going to shake earth you know there's things that can be shaken matter of fact in the the psalmist in psalm 46 talks about how he's trusting god even though there's an earthquake even though there's a tidal wave even though there's mountains slipping into the sea he said i will trust in god why because he's trusting in a god who cannot be shaken whose kingdom cannot be shaken but god promises here he's going to shake everything He's going to shake heaven, he's going to shake earth, and he says he's going to remove or take away the things that can be shaken. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a whole lot of things in our world that we trust in that can be shaken. Have you noticed that money can be shaken? Anybody noticing the stock market this year? Have you noticed that nations can be shaken? Things aren't just what they were. Relationships can be shaken. Your health can be shaken. The economy can be shaken. Philosophies can be shaken. Religions can be shaken. Everything that we want to hold on to and say, I want to grab a hold of something that can't be shaken, it can all be shaken, friends. But I've got some good news for you there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There is a kingdom that cannot be shaken because Jesus Christ is King of Kings. And when he establishes his kingdom, it can't be shaken. In this day, Jesus Christ is building his church. And his church represents his rule on this earth for now. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I guarantee you, no matter what persecution, false teaching, pressure comes on the church, Jesus is going to build his church. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. But I want to tell you something else. There's more to come. Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. He's not coming back as a humble servant riding on a donkey, but as a conquering king of kings riding on a white horse. And he's going to shake the nations. He's going to shake the earth. He's going to set up his kingdom here on this planet. And after that, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is going to shake things up. He's going to shake things up. The political systems are going to be shaken up. Economies are going to be shaken up. The moral fabric of our culture will be shaken up. No longer will women be abused, children be abused. No longer will civilians be killed in war. It will be a time when he's going to shake up this world. And friends, it needs to be shaken up. Don't you think? This world needs to be shaken up, and Jesus is going to shake it up. And when he shakes it up, he will establish that which is unshakable. Matter of fact, in the book of Daniel, we read about all the kingdoms of this earth like a multi-metaled image, and the rock that is cut out with hands is Jesus' kingdom, and it's going to crush all those kingdoms, and he's going to set up his unshakable kingdom. Friends, the best is yet to come. When I watch the news, when I read about a shooting in Buffalo, when I read about the things that are happening that are so horrible in our world, I'm looking forward, not looking to escape, but to continue to, to seek to represent Christ now, but there's coming a time when his unshakable kingdom is going to be established. The best is yet to come. I've read the end of this book, and Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And I want to be a part of that unshakable kingdom. I hope your loyalty to Jesus is more than your loyalty to a political party. I hope that your loyalty to Jesus is more than your loyalty to any kind of philosophy. I hope your loyalty to Jesus Christ is greater than your loyalty to the kingdom of self inside you. I hope your loyalty to Jesus is greater than your football team or your basketball team or your baseball team or any other team. I hope your loyalty to Jesus is primary. Why? Because he's got an unshakable kingdom. And this world's going to be shaken, and everything that we may trust in can be taken away. You know why? He's going to consume this world with fire, and he's going to establish a new kingdom. And friends, it is going to be Good. It is going to be good. Matter of fact, he describes it this way it's going to be like righteousness covering the earth, like the waters cover the sea. Think about that an unshakable kingdom. So, the question is this Who's your king? And who's sitting on the throne of your heart today? Are you living in the fear of God? Because you have a king named Jesus sitting on the throne of your life. Because he's got an unshakable kingdom. I want to attach my, my hope, my faith, my future to that. I don't want to attach my wagon to this. Because friends, I've done a lot of funerals. And I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Never. You seen it? Never seen it. So you attach yourself to something that's here and now that's going to be shaken, then you're attaching yourself to the wrong thing. Attach yourself to Jesus' unshakable kingdom. You cultivate the fear of God by responding to God's powerful message, by trusting in God's unshakable kingdom. And thirdly, expecting God's consuming fire. Now look at verse um, the end of verse 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. He's talking to believers. Let's offer to God an acceptable worship. By the way, friends, listen, when you come to church, you are not coming as a spectator. You're not coming as a consumer. It's not like coming to a restaurant where you serve it up. You're not here to just be entertained by the people on the stage. That's not what this is about. We're all here to offer to God worship. We come to offer a sacrifice. What kind of worship is acceptable to God reverence, and awe. That is godly fear. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Now, friends, some people don't like the idea of God being a consuming fire. They said, I I, I just assumed that wasn't in the Bible. Friends, you and I don't get to decide. We don't get to decide who God is and what God's going to do and what God has spoken and what His kingdoms like. We don't get to decide that. It's the most arrogant thing in the world for a human being to say, I don't like what God says, so I'm going to ignore it. I don't like what God says, so I'm going to disagree with it. That is just plain arrogant and foolish because God's not going to change his mind. God is a consuming fire, and that's demonstrated in the scriptures. For instance, God, as a consuming fire, consumes sinners. Look at Genesis 19 when he consumed Sodom and Gomorrah, totally incinerated those cities. Look at what he did to the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, in Leviticus 18, excuse me, Leviticus 10 when they offered strange fire to God, not in accordance with Scripture, and God consumed them. Think about the rebels against God in Numbers 11, who, though God had been so gracious to them, delivering them from Egypt, parting the Red Sea, giving them manna from heaven, they're complaining and saying, we want to go back to Egypt. We're tired of this manna. God actually consumed them with fire. Our God is a consuming fire. In Revelation chapter 20, we read that of the judgment of those that have not trusted in Christ, that God will cast them into the lake of fire. Friends, understand this. God is a consuming fire and he will consume sinners who don't trust him. That's why the gospel matters. That's why us sharing our faith matters. But God also is a consuming fire in the way he consumes sacrifices. You know, when God said to Moses, I want you to build me this tabernacle in the center of the camp, and told him exactly about the furniture and the coverings and everything. And they, they established it and they built it, and, and then they're, they're offering the first sacrifice. God sent fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. He did the same thing in the temple when Solomon built the temple. They offered the first sacrifice. God sent fire and consumed it. Elisha meets with the uh, prophets of Baal, a God who supposedly sent lightning and fire, and he's, he's meeting with them on Mount Carmel, and he, Elijah is the only one of God's prophets. These prophets of Baal are calling out to Baal to answer by fire, to consume the sacrifice. Matter of fact, they're so sincere, they're cutting themselves and throwing themselves on the sacrifice, saying, nuke us as well. But Elijah covers the sacrifice with water, and he prays to God, and God God consumes the sacrifice and the stones and the water. Our God is a consuming fire. That's why, friends, what happened on the cross matters. God's consuming fire consumed Jesus on the cross. The wrath of God, pictured in consuming fire, consumed Jesus on the cross. There's a word that we don't use in our English language very much, but it's a very good Bible word, and I want to teach it to you today, okay? So I'm gonna say the word I want you to repeat after me. All right, everybody? Propitiation. Propitiation. Wow, you did really good with that. One more time. Propitiation. Propitiation. Words used a handful of times in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Romans 3, John uses it in 1 John 2 2 and 4.10. What does it mean? It's one of those wonderful, amazing words of our salvation, and here's what it means the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Jesus is our wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And when he died on the cross, the wrath of God consumed him instead of me. That's why when I trust in Jesus, I now am delivered from God being consuming fire in that way. And friends, that's good news. When you trust in Jesus as your savior, Grace and mercy and love meet holiness and righteousness and justice on the cross. And God's satisfied with the sacrifice of his son as our substitute, because he is our propitiation, our wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That's good news. God is a consuming fire. But God's fire also refines his people. Moses encounters God at the burning bush in Exodus 3. He sees a fire, and yet the bush is not consumed and he turns aside, and God speaks to him and reveals himself to him. What was that picturing? It's picturing God as a consuming fire. It is picturing God and his holiness, but it's also picturing the nation of Israel that though they had been in bondage and slavery, they had not been consumed. So God in our life as a believer, as consuming fire, uses trials to be able to refine us and to purify us. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 says that the testing the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. Friends, you need to understand that your trials and testing in life are not meant to destroy you, but to refine you. Like a goldsmith, God heats up our lives through those trials so that all the impurities and the sin in our life comes to the top and he skims it off. God uses trials to expose those areas that need change, that need to be made like Christ. So God as a consuming fire actually consumes those parts of our lives that need to be changed, and that's a good thing. On the day of Pentecost, everyone in the upper room that day had a tongue of fire on their heads. Because God was now dwelling among his people. Friends, our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. He says, now listen, we need to serve God acceptably with grace, with reverence and godly fear. John Newton wrote a hymn that's probably the best-known hymn in, in the world today, Amazing Grace. You think about the words of that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's grace that taught my heart to fear, the fear of God. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Sing that with me,
1: okay? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see, was mine.
0: belief. It's grace that taught my heart to fear and grace that relieves my fear. Prophet Isaiah, as you see up on the screen, this passage of Scripture, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah had lost the fear of God and entered into the priesthood and violated God's commandments, and he was consumed with leprosy. The year that King Uzziah died meant that the king wasn't on the throne and that Assyria was at the gates, and there was a lot of reason to fear. And Isaiah the prophet is in the temple and he sees God. He sees God on a throne, sovereign, high, exalted, lifted up. He saw the train of his 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 robe, the glory of God filling the temple. And then he saw these fiery angels, the seraphim, with six wings, two covering their face in awe and worship, two covering their feet in humility, and with two they were able to fly. And then they called to one another. Listen to what they called. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook. Everything is shaken except that unshakable kingdom. The house was filled with smoke, the glory of God. And the response of Isaiah is he sees himself in his sin. When you fear God, you're going to see your sin differently. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. I deserve the judgment of God. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. And I have seen the king, this one of the unshakable kingdom, the Lord of hosts. And God then sends One of the angels, with a burning coal, taken with tongs from the altar, touched his mouth and said, behold, I have touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. He feared God. He saw God. And then God quieted his fears. And God asked, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, I volunteer. Here am I, send me. Listen, friends, When you fear God, you'll see God in all of his glory. When you fear God, you see yourself in your sin. When you fear God, you understand what the cross is all about to cleanse you. When you fear God, and God says, I need you to do this, you say, sign me up. Sign me up. So three questions. Have you responded to God's powerful message? Every time you hear the word of God... You are responsible to respond. Have you responded to the good news message of Christ for at being your Savior by you turning in repentance from going away from God to turning towards Him? Turning away from your sin and turning towards God for cleansing? As a believer in Jesus Christ, are you responding to His message? Are you apathetic towards His Word? Are you trusting in God's unshakable kingdom, or are you trusting in something that you're trying to hold on to something that's firm? Friends, there's nothing firm except the kingdom of God. Nothing firm. Everything else is shaken. Everything else will be taken away. And are you expecting God to be the consuming fire? Are you expecting His refining work in your life? Are you offering Him a sacrifice worthy of Him? My friends, God is is a God to be feared, but he's also a God to be trusted and loved. The gospel means, it means that though we fear God, we trust him. Though we fear God, we love him. And there's no contradiction in that. I fear God, but I trust him. I fear God, but I love him. Why? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. Father, May we rediscover what it is to be a god-fearing man, a god-fearing woman, a god-fearing teen, a god-fearing child. May we have such reverence and worship for you in your glory and all that you are. May we have such submission and obedience to the authority of your word. May we realize that the beginning of all wisdom is to fear you. God, may we live May we live every day of our lives in the fear of God. And for those who have yet to have trusted in Christ and the gospel, may they fear you so much so they run to your cross, because it is only there that forgiveness, only there that the wrath of God is absorbed, only there that eternal life is found. In Jesus' name, amen.